We ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 3 this morning, if you would. We'll continue our study in the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor, looking at chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation. Um, do you ever remember maybe when a teacher or someone said to you, uh, put your thinking caps on? So, it's not that the sermon is that heady um, or academic, but I'm going to do some reading to you. I will remind you that back in the day, 100, 200 years ago, that pastors read their sermons often to the tune of one to two hours. I'm not asking for permission, I'm just letting you know. (laughs) I'm just letting you know uh, that they used to do that. So people, we do have the genetic capacity uh, to be able to think and listen to hard thoughts for a while. and I'm going to start off that way. I'm going to ask you to think at the beginning rather than at the end. And uh, just about a thought as we look at the letter of Church Laodicea. I will have you stand in a moment. It will be a moment. And I have a little bit I want, I want you to think about this morning. David Wells is an author that I have thought very highly of. I've read numbers of his books. He really challenges contemporary Christianity to overcome its therapeutic, self-centered, shallow culture. So much of his writing is about the subject of the contemporary church. He is an academic. He he is a thinker. And so some of the language here will sound that way. So if you could just really work at listening today, okay? I I know being read to is a little bit boring, but I, I just can't duplicate what he's going to say. Between 1945 and 1973, the average family income in America increased by two thirds in constant dollars. Unemployment dropped from a high in the Depression of 1 in 3 to less than 1 in 10 by 1993. And the American way of life rapidly became a byword in many parts of the world. But study after study conducted during this period suggests that although newly prosperous America had uh, money and leisure, uh, time to own, to do so many multiple things, that had only been mere dreams for many of their parents, they were increasingly less satisfied with their lives. City streets became less and less hospitable at night. Drugs became more and more prevalent. Inner cities began to rot. And a whole generation of baby boomers became painfully alienated both from their parents and their society. As economic welfare increased in this country during the post-war period, Angus Campbell has said, psychological well-being declined. Those who thought that affluence could, make, could be made to compensate or offset the drain of the human spirit, that modernization, and when I say modernization, don't think just technology, but maybe think some of the luxuries that we enjoy, the, the conveniences of life, that money would be a substitute for the negative forces of modernization had exacted were sorely disappointed. While we now bask in relative plenty, the very means of amassing that plenty the reorganization of our world by the process of modernization, he says, has diminished our soul. Now, we will miss entirely the importance of the new arrangement of cost and benefits if we view them simply as factors on one side of the scale or the other. He says the world is now filled with so many competing interests, so many rival values, so many gods, religions, and worldviews, so many activities, so many possibilities, with so many choices, that the older symphony of meaning 
has given way to the random tumult of the marketplace, to a perpetual assault of all of our senses. At its starkest, it is in transition from Mozart to Guns N' Roses, from Aquinas to infomercials, from Milton to gangster rap. We may now have everything, but none of it means anything anymore. The most we seem able to do is to take daily inventories of our personal needs and then try to match up people, products, and opportunities with them. The irony is that this is psychological hedonism in which self is the arbiter, the decider of life, and it is always self-destructive. Not only are we betrayed, we betray ourselves. Meanwhile, we also pay the price of destroying all interest in the transcendent, God, the sole source of genuine meaning of life. God, the supernatural, moral absolutes, well, these have become strangers in our modern secularized world. We are like Yeats' falcon, increasingly oblivious to the voice of the falconeer. The center no longer holds. All is flung to the periphery. He says, all meaning is lost. We have become pawns of the world we have created. Now that is the function of modernization. And again, I want you to think, not just technology, but as we have more and more, richer and richer, um, everything seems to mean less and less. Modernity has been hard at work reducing evangelical faith to something that is largely private and eternal. Internal, sorry. Belief has shrunk from being a, a, a contemporary confession of God's truth in the church and beyond to being simply a part of personal identity and psychological makeup. Many evangelicals quietly assume, perhaps even without much thought, that it would be uncouth and uncivil to push this private dimension too noticeably or noisily on others or into the public square. The right of each individual to his or her own private thoughts and belief is held to be both axiomatic and inviolable. So it is that the particularities of evangelical faith, the things that make it different, are dissolved. Modern culture grants me absolute freedom to believe whatever I want to believe, so long as I keep those beliefs from infringing on the consciousness or behavior of anyone else, especially on points of controversy. So it is, John Cuddley has suggested, that civil religion is always a religion of civility. The edges of faith are rounded off, and the angles are all soft. The legacy of Protestant orthodoxy has been surgically altered to fit modern standards of pleasantness and light. And I could go on, and I wouldn't feel like if I spent the hour reading some of these thoughts, you would be wasted. For you and I to believe that modern Christianity is a fair representative of what God intends, I believe would be a gross miscalculation. We are fish in the water of modernity. I know we have a Bible, we have faith, but I don't think any of us really realize how rounded and soft we have become. 
I want to invite you to stand with me this morning as we look at the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14. And we're going to examine a church. Now, this is really important for you to get in connection to what I just read to you. We're going to look at the church of Laodicea and God's commentary about it. What makes Laodicea so incredibly unique from the other six churches is its prosperity. Was its then modernity. You with me? They were rich. They, they had resources like no other church. And if modernity and ease and comfort created this church in the first century, only God knows what it's done to our hearts and our faith. Verse 14, under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not thou that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked? I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that thy shame and thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him, and I will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh, to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and have set down my father in his throne. And he that hath an ear to ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Our Holy Father, I pray that Lord, you would, that, Lord, you would illuminate our eyes today to the possibility and the reality that, Lord, maybe these effects of wealth, modernity, of comfort and ease, of a thousand choices, billions of opinions, Lord, have had some small effect on our relationship with you. And Lord, to the degree that we can, where we need to make course correction, I pray you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. The prophet Isaiah lived at a time when Jerusalem and the nation of Judah were quite prosperous. The city, the nation, were experiencing an all-time high of economic wealth. Things were going well in the city. There were no imminent threats nor enemies encroaching upon their borders or on their horizon. At the time, there were not really many false prophets rivaling Isaiah and his preaching. Their synagogues were full of people going through their routines and rituals. I, I can say it this way. They had no enemies without that were vexing them. Yet in this environment of blessing and prosperity, something insidious was happening within the hearts of the believers of Jehovah. The Jews' devotion and love for God was rotting on the vine. And what an enemy and threat could not do, indulgence, success, and self-sufficiently 
Self-sufficiency did. And that was turn the heart of the people who once loved God into a love that was now useless, unprofitable, and uh, fruitless. Isaiah likened the people, chapter 5 of that text, he likened the people of his day to an unproductive vineyard. God himself is described as the one who tended the vineyard, who blessed it, who pruned it, who cared for it. As a matter of fact, God posed the question at the end of the text in chapter 5 of Isaiah, what more could I have done for you? What more could I possibly have blessed you with? And God looked at the unproductive vineyard and he said, you know what? Just tear down the walls. Let it succumb to its natural forces. I'm done with it in this state. It has no use nor value to me. Usefulness is important in life. Usefulness is something we all expect of the things that we own, the things that we're involved in. The things that don't work, well, that's, that's broken and, and that's what we want. It, things that are uh, unproductive, that don't work, well, they're sort of like salt that has lost its saltiness. That's good for nothing, to borrow expression from the Lord Jesus Christ, but to be trodden under the feet of men. This was the blight and the plague upon the church of Laodicea. The church has lost its way. Its fervor for God had grown tepid and lukewarm. They had taken the incredible blessings of God and they had spent them all on themselves. This was not just the problem of the New Testament church, but this is the problem of Israel in history. God blessed them. He gave them pasture. And then the Bible says they became satisfied. What's the point? They became unproductive, self-centered, hedonistic. We know of the, of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't their, just their gross immorality that was the cause of their judgment, but their idleness of time. The fact that they were once again indulgent upon themselves with no heart that sought to look outside its own borders. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are letters directed by God, dictated to God by, God by God to John to deliver to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Chapter 1 tells us that Jesus walks among his churches. What a sobering thought for us today that the Lord Jesus Christ walks among his candlesticks, representative of our church. And, and I don't know how that happens today. I just know that in his omniscience and omnipotence that it can happen. And the Lord Jesus Christ here is looking upon our worship today, the way that we do church. More importantly, he's looking at your hearts today and how you're engaging in what we're doing this morning. And if he has an opinion on the seven churches and its members, there's no doubt he has an opinion about Eastland Baptist Church and what we're doing here this morning. That is the point of the text to remind us that he, he does. He's present in his churches to strengthen them, to support them, to uphold them, to lift them. He, he went through the same things in terms of persecution and difficulty that they did. But he's also there to inspect them and to take spiritual inventory of their lives, of their hearts, and their worship. The seven letters recorded in these two chapters give us an insight into the things that the Lord desires and commends in churches like ours. We have insight into things, the philosophies, the practices, and behaviors that he abhors. In most of the churches, Jesus found something to commend. Jesus commended them for their labor of love. He commended them for perseverance in the midst of persecution. 
He commended them for their doctrinal purity and their intolerance of evil. He noticed their faithfulness, their service, their endurance, their patience. He, he, he noticed they were being true to their name and his name. And of course, he articulated to each church what he had, as the text says, against them. Things that they needed to fix, to shore up, they needed to repent of, or else he might just take the candlestick, the church, away. And so he encouraged them to repent and change, to encourage doctoral purity. He, 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 he encouraged them to view life with an eternal advantage point. But for the church of Laodicea, there were only words of sadness and rebuke. The church had flamed out because they had let too much of the world in. In the letter, as we look into verse 14, the letter opens in a familiar structure as we've studied these seven letters with the Lord introducing and identifying himself as the author. And in the text, he calls himself, verse 14, the Amen. He calls himself the faithful witness in the beginning of creation. And we've learned in each of these letters that these introductory titles of identification have some relevance to the state of the condition of the church that he wants them to pay attention to. In this case, the amen, the word means verification of truth. We in the church, you, you may say it at some point and feel free to. When you hear something that you know to be true, we often say amen. amen. We are agreeing. We are verifying that truth. Jesus is not just verification of the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. And so he's basically saying once again, I am truth. I am deity. What I say is absolute. I am faithful and true in what I see. What I'm about to say to you cannot be refuted, is what the Lord is saying. I say it with all the authority because I am also the beginning of creation. It doesn't mean he had a beginning. It means that he is the author of creation. He is the authority over creation. This was a term that used of the, of the highest rank. And so what the Lord is saying, I'm getting ready to say some very difficult things to you, and they are true. What I say cannot be refuted. And it's with absolute authority. And so you need to pay attention. And we do well to heed that this morning as well. He looks at this church and he says, I know thy works. Of course he would. And he offers a diagnosis of what he sees. And he says to them, thou art not, thou art neither cold nor hot, but rather you're lukewarm, um, distasteful, sickening. Um, you, these are hard words. I look at you and it makes me sick. And, and my reaction is I just want to spew you out of my mouth. Now this metaphor of hot and cold and lukewarm was taken from uh, a situation that they all would have understood in the city of Laodicea. The city of Laodicea was located in something called the Lycus Valley in modern day Turkey. To one side, somewhat far off, would have been a set of mountains. And to another side, a city called Hierapolis, and some regions to the south, there were hot springs there. There was not really a way to 
get water to Laodicea from the mountains. They had no natural water source of their own. Many cities were built along rivers or seaside. Laodicea had none of those advantages. So the water was piped in, really I would say pumped up from either Hierapolis or the cities to the south. And when this water was pumped, it came from hot springs underground. So it was hot water. It was water that would have been therapeutic and relaxing and restorative and healing for the people in the city of, of, of Hierapolis. But here this water was passed through aqueduct. And then for a, a, a considerable length of time, it traveled underground through some natural caverns and some piping. You can look these up actually in, in antiquity, some history. But these, this ground was filled with mineral deposits. And, and so this water would pick up this mineral content. So from its source, it was hot. As it traveled to Laodicea, it didn't have time to cool, but rather it had the opportunity to become lukewarm, filled with worldly contaminants to boot. And so God says, you're a lot like the water of your city. Now, this is a, this is a constant source of complaint from the citizens of Laodicea. There, there's, you can go historically find it over and over and over. The, word, the, the water of the ride was actually unusable. Unless it went through a great distillation process, which it had to undergo, and then recooling uh, and evaporating again, it, it really could not be used. And God was saying to them, you're a lot like that water you complain about. You're lukewarm and useless. That's the idea. Hot water here, the idea of hot here doesn't necessarily mean spiritual fervor. It's a common interpretation. It's really not what it's saying. The word hot here means, I wish you were, I wish you were hot. I wish you were useful. I wish you had some ther- you know, at least therapeutic, helpful, uh, restorative purpose about you. Or, or, or I wish you were cold. It's not that God wishes we were spiritually dead. That makes zero sense. But rather, I wish you were refreshing. I wish you were useful. I wish you were tasteful. I wish you had some use that men could appreciate. But instead, you reside in the middle of both those things. You're lukewarm. The point being, you are useless. You are distasteful. You have no function. You accomplish nothing. You're just there for your own sake, and you're full of worldly contaminant. You have too associated with the world, and it has numbed you and made you irrelevant. That's the idea in the text. You're like that, he says, to this church and its membership. You're good for nothing. You're tepid. You're indifferent. You're full of corruption and contamination. But this condition, this state of useless was lost to them. Man, we've got to get this. Can people really be that clueless? Well, can we? I mean, you know, it's really easy us for standing on some perch and say, what, forgive me, what a bunch of dummies. How could you not know you were lukewarm? I don't know. I've often said one of the greatest gifts that any of us would ever possess is the gift of self-awareness. Because I can tell you often that from my perspective, it appears that many people do not have that gift. And I'm not being unkind. I'm just telling you what I perceive to be the truth. People don't know what we all see. 
They lacked the gift of self-awareness, and these people lacked it in entirety. It was lost to them. You see, Laodicea was exceedingly rich. It was very wealthy. It, it rivaled Rome in its wealth. It was the epicenter of the baking industry in Asia Minor. The wealthiest of people in that region of the world lived there. They did commerce there. There was a great textile industry, garments and wool. There was a famous black wool that was sheared there that was woven into fabrics that were world-renowned and coveted by people all over the globe. People wanted that black wool and would pay an incredible price for it. it was a, this is so ironic. It was a medical center as well. They had a, a school of medicine there. And what they specialized in was the eyes. From the minerals that were so distasteful, they were able to, to take those and make a paste and a powder, powder that actually if it's spread on and put in the eyes improved people's eyesight. How ironic that later in the text Jesus says, you need some medicine that can actually make you see because what you have isn't working. Matter of fact, your wealth and prosperity and indifference and contamination of the world has made you utterly, look up here, blind blind. This wealth minus external pressure and threat, which by the way often serves to purify and strengthen a church, plus compromise with the culture around them, destroyed their spiritual health and fervor. They lost their way and they didn't know they were lost. Verse 17, they thought they were rich, increased with goods and needed nothing. But they lacked self-awareness to realize that they had nothing that really mattered, that they were doing nothing to make a difference for the kingdom of God, and that they were at risk of losing their spiritual identity and really their own church. What they needed to do was wake up and see. See what? Their wretchedness, their miserableness, their poverty, their nakedness, their blindness. This is what the Lord wanted for them. He wanted them to trade their love for, for money and instead buy real gold from God. The idea here is buy the treasures of heaven. Right. Take, take the resource, the blessings I, I've given you and do something than the barn builder did in Luke chapter 12 who simply kept building bigger barns. The man asked a great question. He had a terrible answer. With all his wealth, he asked the question, what shall I do? Super good question. And his response is, this will I do. I'll just give myself more of what I already have enough of. And Jesus says, what I want for you is to buy gold from me. Invest in the real riches of heaven. He says, I, I want you, I want for you, I want you purity. I don't want you to be like the water that's so contented with minerals and and the corruption. I, I, want, I want you to get a white garment for me. I want you to be pure. What, what's he saying? I, I want you to have some devotion for me. I, I don't want you to be, I'm for God on Sundays and for work on Mondays and for this on Tuesdays and I give my Fridays to this. He's like, I want you all in. I want you to look like you have a white garment, not a spotted coat of a thousand different opinions and things and whatever else that's out there. That's what they were doing. What, you know what I want for you? I want you just to see. I want you to look in the mirror and see yourself. I want you to look out the window and see the world and the need that's there. 
and you're just having this little private public club and party every Sunday, and you count that for your spiritual worship and your duty to God, and I'm telling you, it makes me puke. That's what the Lord wanted. I'm going to get a little ahead of myself in terms of application, but verse 21. He says, this is part of what it means to overcome the world. Okay, look at me for a second. We've talked about overcoming persecution. We've talked about overcoming difficulty. We've talked about overcoming trial. We've talked about overcoming tribulation. The Lord has said over and over, you need to overcome. You need to be hooper nike. You get those who overcome the difficulties, the trials, the challenges of life. But sometimes overcoming means this, overcoming self and our own selfishness, and our own indulgences, and our own proclivities to do what we want to do when we want to do it. Sometimes the greatest overcoming is not defeating an enemy without, it is defeating the enemy within. And we all know what a monster we can be. Beating, defeating ourselves is one of life's greatest challenges. What a tragedy that entire affluent church came together every Sunday, went through their ritual routine, sang their songs, built a, a beautiful building, had programs for members, cleaned up, looked good, paid tribute and give tips to Jesus. And all the while made Jesus feel like an outsider. I'm standing on the door and I'm knocking. You guys were in there having church, and I'm singing our songs with passive indifference. Invitation time, no one moves. Tracks, sitting in the track rack, collecting dust back there. Worldly attitudes, opinions, philosophies in our hearts, really tightly lodged there, and he's just going... I'm an outsider. Total, complete outsider. And I'd like for you to let me in. I don't know about for you, that is incredibly sobering for me. If Laodicea in its first century wealth was made irrelevant by its thousands of decisions and its plurality of... um, Thoughts. Gosh. What about, what, what hope is there for us? Is in some measure this a description of us, of you, of me? Are we useful? Are we doing something that really matters? Are we exercising utility for God? Let me use some Bible words. Are we salty? Are we light? Are we ambassadors? Are we servants? When we come together, do we really worship? How often do we engage in genuine repentance? Where does our checkbook say our treasures go? Where does our time say our heart is at? Are we properly using the resources that God has given us? It's, those are, Legitimate questions. 
I know this, wealth, success, and security makes people weak. As a rule, not universal. And by the way, when I say those words, wealth, success, and security, I am talking to every individual in this room. You're sitting in an air-conditioned room on padded pews. I mean, if that's not wealth and luxury, I don't know what is compared to these people. So I'm not talking about a guy who drives a Mercedes. I am talking to you who live in a home that would be incomparable to these people's home, who drive places in a moment that they would have to walk or hike. So I'm just going to put it in perspective for you today. It can cause us to lose focus, lose mission, our true purpose if we are not careful. Money is not evil, but it can thoroughly corrupt the heart and make us evil. It can make us selfish. It can rob us of virtue, of our character. It can cause us to have misguided priority. Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into the kingdom of heaven. As a rule, wealth does not have a good effect on people. Money, wealth, success, compete with God as a source of security. 1 Timothy 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. But they will that we be rich, fall into temptations and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in seduction, in sed- uh, destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which some coveted after have erred from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. To be clear and fair, I'm talking to everyone in this room. And, 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 and the, you know, we, we hear these words that are so dramatic. Destruction. From God's vantage point, that's how it looks. I'm not talking about a life that's reeled out and some drunken guy who won the lottery and now has nothing. I'm talking about people who are middle class who go to church every week, but they're like a hammer sitting on a shelf, never hitting a nail. That's being drowned in Destruction. They think they're okay, they're not. We're all rich. It's why we in the larger evangelical world have lost our mission, our purpose, our heart for God. We're too, too, too preoccupied trying to make ourselves happy. As church, sometimes get too caught up in trying to make you happy. Saying nothing mean, because then if I preach something direct, you might leave. You can go to across the street and hear a softer sermon, I suppose. We've grown soft by our lifestyle and our connection to modernity. I'm just telling you this, for you to think that it has no effect on you, well, that's delusional. Secondly, we need to make sure as individuals in a community of faith that we actually live a life that engages in the world in such a way that we actually need God's presence and help. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you really needed what God and God only could do for you? When did you do what money, when did God do for you what money couldn't do, what time couldn't do for you, what talent couldn't do for you? Like I think we just go click, 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 click. That's all we do. I'm not talking about trial and difficulty when we need the Lord then. I'm talking about just living our Christian lives. When's the last time you actually needed the power of God and His grace to do something you were trying to do? 
like witnessing, serving, giving, giving by faith, not the budget, stepping out, maybe trying to teach or, or serve when you feel totally inadequate to the task. When was the last time you realized, minus God's help, that it wouldn't work? I, I'm thinking about that for me. And I'm thinking about that for Eastland Baptist Church. When's the last time we did exploits? We tried something really hard. We gave in a sacrificial way that we really humbled ourselves, that we cried out to God and needed Him to answer. The author I read from this morning in a book called Above All Earthly Powers likens contemporary Christianity to the church at Laodicea. That's what he said. The church today lies not out on the edges and depths of what is truly wrong, but on the surface where nothing is right or wrong and nothing we do really, truly matters. If that is true for us, God help us. We may not be involved in the world's grossest of sins, but we sit here going through our routines and rituals, lukewarm. It's not a judgment, it's a concern. I think it's a concern we all should have based on the circumstances that we're in today. How many times, how many times have we been told we have a great church? How many affirmations do we receive? How many times do I know we're thankful for this place? I get it. But let's say a fraction of that is true. Then this is also true. To whom much is given. There's a lot required. You know what that makes us today? Culpable responsible for every dime, every talent, every ability, every day that we can serve the Lord. God's looking at Eastland Baptist Church. He wants us to be hot, useful. He'd rather us be cold, useful, Man, just to be going through the motions. Just can't abide by that. I want to suggest today we need to mercilessly strip ourselves of our haughty spirit, of our indifference and complacency, of our respectability, our cleaned up facade of what we think is true Christianity. And maybe actually become useful. 